and uh, just change the wind here real quick. All right. Well, good evening, everybody. Glad to have you guys out here. Looks like we got a somewhat small crowd for the question and answer, but we also have it online. So if anybody online is watching, feel free to uh, post your questions in the the live chat, and uh, we'll we'll get to them in order. But uh, as as we normally would do, the people here who have questions will uh, definitely get to go first. Hopefully, you guys brought some hard ones for us, or just ones that you've been wondering about. And so the way it'll work is John has a microphone back there. The reason why uh, when you ask a question, we'd like you to go back and, uh, and use the microphone is because we're streaming this and recording it, and we want your questions to be heard as well. Um, and so, yeah. Apart from that, um, Pastor Josh, do you want to open us? Yeah. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together, Lord, to just refocus our minds on what your word has to say so that we may know more about Christ, so that we may know more how to love each other, to act in this world, Lord, uh, that we may know how to help advance your kingdom through evangelism, Lord, how we may deal with sin, Lord, there's all kinds of things that we've discussed in the past, um, how to delight in your return, and um, Lord, how we know that you exist, Lord, there's so many things that we get to cover that uh, bolster our faith and and help settle, Lord, those disputes that that Satan might use to cause us to waver in our faith. So, Lord, we look forward to um, the things that we'll discuss tonight, the things that we'll learn, and may they all have their end in your glory and the furthering of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 <clears throat> okay. Thank you, brother. Thank you, sir. Thank you, brother. Oh. All right. So who... <clears throat> Who would like to go first? Anybody? Uh, anybody have any questions? So, well, go on up to the mic, and uh, you guys could form a line over there, and we'll take them in order. So I thought that you wanted a difficult one. <laughs> on Tuesday nights, we've been studying in the Book of Job, and we pretty much came to the conclusion that Job lived sometime after Noah, but before Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, so I guess part of my question is, is that a good assumption? But it seems to me that we did not get the Torah, the Bible, the written word, until Moses came down after Israel came out of Egypt. They were in the wilderness. That means that all the way from Adam through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and then all the way to Moses, we had no written word. But yet it seems that the saints of God during that period of time, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, was that called the antediluvian? Yeah, before the flood. Before the flood. Yeah. So... How did they know how to live, and did they have, they must not have had any of the liturgy or the festivals. I mean, they did once they got Passover, but to my knowledge, there was nothing prior to that. I know we had covenants with Abraham and Noah and uh, 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 Adam, 
Was there somebody else in there too? So that's my question. How did they know how to live during that period of time in a way that was pleasing unto God? Well, and there was a second question is about your assumption of when Job lived as well. So there, there was a, a lot of, I think, particular points worth answering in all of that. Some of it is, uh, you know, textual critical type stuff. Um, so let me take the easy one first. Um, we can't tell if Job was before the patriarchs, during the patriarchs, or a little bit after them. Um, because, like, the details of the text just show us it's the patriarchal era. Meaning that um, there's, it's not in the land of Israel. There's no centralized place you're able to go for worship. Pretty much the head of the family is the one making the sacrifices for everyone and setting up altars, which is very similar to what we see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob doing. So Job could have been any time before them, but after the flood, or during or after. I do know in Second Temple Jewish literature, and of course this is just a legend, but they have Job marry Jacob's daughter uh, Dinah. Um, <laughs> to somehow connect them to the family of God. Now, of course, you know, some ancient Hebrew made that up. But what that tells you is 2,000 years ago in the time of Christ, they didn't necessarily think Job predated Abraham. They tried to put him more of a contemporary but, with Jacob. But the age of Job, he said he lived 140 years past from the time that he went through the testing. And he had grown children prior to that time. So he must have lived well into his 200s. <clears throat> sure. And so... I don't so, know. How old was Abraham when he died? Abraham was pretty old as well. Um, I don't think he broke 200. No. But he was high 100s, um, if I remember right. Um, because Noah lived, I think, till he was like 600. Well, 600 years after the flood. Noah made his 900s. And then, okay. it, start, and then it starts dropping significantly after that. And if I remember right, because I preached this a couple months ago, um, you hit a point after the flood where the lifespans start dropping in half, mm -hmm. almost from each generation, and then it gets down into the, the 100 to 200 range. And so I think that whether we're talking about Abraham or we're talking about Job, they fit within that window. And I do know that, um, that Jacob, when he's standing before the Pharaoh as an old man, you know, says that his days have been short compared to his father's, which... I think would include Abraham. So, you know, Job probably did live longer than Abraham based on the math you're giving. We don't know for sure, but it wouldn't have been like significantly longer to put him up near Noah. Um, Cause yeah, I mean the Shem, I think if I remember right, I'd have to go look it up, but I mean, he's like three, 300 years less than Noah. Abraham so, was 175. Abraham was 175. And so you're saying Job <laughs> lived 140 years after his testing. It yeah. doesn't tell us how old he was before the testing. He was old enough to have grown kids. So we just do a little bit of math. Let's say he started having kids when he was um, 20. You know, they would be grown up by the time he's in his 40s. And then we have 104. So, yeah, it could put him in the same ballpark as Abraham. All right. Yeah. And, um, well. That's the easy question. <laughs> yeah. So it was passed down orally. There, there's no other way to get around the fact that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And that didn't happen until a lot later in earth history but also um you know into israelite history so um it had it had to have been passed down orally there's no other way you know and um adam having lived so long and um i don't i don't know exactly where he would have um died off in comparison to when noah lived but it may have noah may have been alive i, I haven't looked at the timelines of the genealogies in a while but it may be that noah was around 
Um, for some of Adam's life. Yeah, yeah, for some of Adam's life. So it's very plausible that if they met each other, he may have passed on what he knew and so on and so forth. Um, but even in, um, I'm sure Steve, maybe when he went through Genesis, went over some of the the uh, stories around the world regarding the flood and a family, right, uh, that survived sure. and him and his children. Um, there's a reason why uh, there's a lot of worship of ancestors that some of these guys live so long they outlive their great 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 grandchildren that were born because the lifespans were falling off. And you know, if, if we met somebody that was five or six hundred years old and we're only living to be 120 or so at the most, right. we might think, who is this superhuman? And um, anyway, just again, long lifespans meaning people still were able to pass on. If if Noah lived, uh, what what do we? Speculate so uh, into his nine hundred. So there's eight. If he lived during the time of Adam, there's eighteen hundred years. You know, a third of human history wrapped up in in two guys. If we, you know, believe in a young Earth, you know. Yes. Um, and so uh, two and thirds. <laughs> uh, yeah. So two thirds of 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 uh, what was passed on to Adam, you know, um, unto Noah would be, you know, roughly. Um, I don't know the exact number, but uh, that would be a long oral tradition. <laughs> You know, or oral scriptures being passed on. Yeah, and, and when we were going through those parts of Genesis, you're able to, there's overlap of every single person that you need to have overlap to have this. Overlap from Adam to Noah, mm-hmm. overlap from obviously Noah to Shem, and then an overlap from Shem to Abraham. Both Noah and Shem were alive until Abraham was about 100. Um, so, so the point is, um, to get all that pre-stuff, yeah, and, and then the question is, how did Moses get it 400 years later from Abraham? Well, one thing that, that we know about oral cultures, because they pass it down orally, like a lot of times they'll say, well, the telephone effect will mess it up. But the telephone effect's not how oral cultures work. Telephone effect is, I tell Josh, one person, he then tells Ernesto, Ernesto tells David, yeah, it gets all messed up. That's not how oral cultures work. A person gives the transmission to a whole group. That whole group gets it at once. And then if one person messes it up, the group, of course, corrects. That's not what he said. And so that's how it keeps getting passed on to the whole group at once from generation to generation. And it becomes very difficult for somebody to mess up the oral transmission. So that's one way Moses could have had the accurate information. Second way is as a prince of Egypt, he would have had access to the vast libraries of Egypt. And some of this stuff would have been recorded in the original memories, such as Jacob's time or Joseph's time um, working for that Pharaoh. I mean, those things are lost now, but they wouldn't have been lost in Moses' time. And so, and then we also have to remember divine inspiration. Sure. You know, that's, that's going to be the big key there. <clears throat> um, okay. Another piece of that, too, is that really the, the, the phone problem, if you will, or do you want to call it not phone telephone, problem, telephone problem, right? That's, that really became more of an issue when, when writing was actually invented. What I mean by that is that, is that I forget, it was either Plato or Socrates who said basically when, when mankind started to write things down, that's when the mind started to forget everything. Why, why is that? Because if you write things down, you don't have to worry about memorizing it or remembering it very well or being very intentional on listening to the details of a story. You had it written down somewhere. So to Steve's point about the oral culture, they took this stuff very seriously and listened intently and wanted to make sure they were acting what they were, what they were passing on to people. Because, that's, again, that's how information was transferred from, from people to people. It's funny that you say that because it was a couple weeks ago, Craig, I was sitting in a Craig Keener lecture at Gateway, and he brought up how, I don't know if it was Seneca or somebody, but back in the first century, you had people who off memory, they couldn't read, but they could recite 
Homer's entire Iliad. And that was normal. That was their job. You know, because they didn't have TV then. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you're going to show up and listen to this guy, like, you know, recount the great tale of Homer's Iliad, that thing's long. I don't know if you've ever looked Mm -hmm. at how long the Iliad is. It's huge. And people had it from start to finish memorized. And so people today, we just have weak sauce memories um, (laughs) compared to what people were used to having back then. Yeah, and if you live 900 years, you got a lot more things time to memorize things you know so but and just a quick glance it looked like uh Abra- um noah and abraham overlapped at least 58 years just from a quick uh a quick search on that okay so um, then maybe it was shem 100 years if i remember because i remember yeah, one of them Ab- abraham was already old but really from even adam to noah to abraham there's only three people you know um but uh yeah like he said aside from the inspiration, you know, the, the important thing to remember, too, is when we're talking about the Word of God, uh, Hebrews 1 tells us, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. And so oh, okay. w- one of the things we want to remember is that God has always re- required a mediator between himself and mankind. Sure. And ultimately, the way that God has spoken is through prophets, many different ways, uh, but Christ is the ultimate prophet of prophets. He uh, he is the ultimate mediator, and Scripture says, "In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things." And so, just like the sacrifices pointed to Christ, just like the priesthood pointed to Christ, so too the prophets of all prophets and the King of all kings is Jesus Christ, and He is the, ultimately the one that we must listen to, um, knowing that uh, it was His word being transmitted through the prophets. And so um, we have the assurance that our God will get us exactly what he wants us to know. And so we submit to the word of, of Christ. Thank you. And there's one more point, actually. Oh. I, there was one more point to your question was, how did they know like how to worship and how to obey back then and stuff like that? And I think the later revelation gives us the clue because like the temple was arranged and the tabernacle to function like the Garden of Eden, which is unmistakable. And then even when you read, like, after they get kicked out of the Garden of Eden, they're still near the Garden of Eden, right? And Because and where else are they making, like, Cain and Abel making a sacrifice, right? Mm-hmm. And, and how was Cain pushed further east after he sinned? So you have them pushed eastward out of the Garden, and so they're on the outside. That's where they're living, the community of God. They're, you know, they're making their worship, you know, making their sacrifices in a prescribed way. Cain does it wrong, so God had to have told them, And when Cain does it wrong, he's pushed even further east. And so then we have the same type of thing with Israel. They got this tabernacle, which all the rest of Israel is on the outside of the garden, if you will. Some people get to go inside, especially the high priest. And then, of course, among Israel, those who are going to break the covenant get cut off from the people. And so it's like Cain. They're being sent further east. So I think there's a continuity in how God revealed things. And so the, the newer stuff kind of points back to what was happening and the older stuff, and gives us uh, some of those big hints. Cool. Thank you. Albert. <laughs> I'm not going to cut the joke. He said I was going to cut a joke about his height. Wait, I just, just kind of did it. Did it. Yeah. Okay, you got me again, Albert. All right. So. Um, okay. My question is that as a member of a church, and the body of Christ is that did not Jesus quote in scripture that when he says love one another as I love you meaning he's not talking about the spiritual things he's talking about the physical things like to love one another like if 
if they were your own flesh and blood, meaning you have concerns about them and you worry about them. And, and if a member is absent from the body of Christ, isn't it the way of having concern about the person not being in church just for that one, for that one day or a couple of days? Is to reach out and to like either call or text to see, hey, you know, have we seen you in church? Are you okay? You know, it shows your compassion. It shows that love you have for that person. And sometimes people won't be able to reach out because they're fully sick. And and the truth is that um, my concern is that as believers, you know. I could be wrong about this because I'm never right about anything, but the truth is, is that isn't it our part as Christians to show that love, to show that effort? Like, not in a way just come to church, okay, I'm here, he's not, that's fine, you know, I just keep him in prayer. But <clears throat> what is God thinking about this? You know, what is God's behavior in this situation? Like, wait a minute. You're supposed to be brothers and sisters. You're supposed to love one another, but yet, what are you not looking out, searching for that one that is lost? How Jesus did, he didn't concern about others. He went out for that one lost sheep because that lost sheep could be hurt. The lost sheep could be um, somewhere else in a place where it can't get out of. So, Albert, if I'm understanding the question, what, what you're getting at is if somebody's here for a while, but then they're not here for a while. If we're going to be Christ-like and be loving, shouldn't we be, like, shouldn't people be reaching out to them, checking up on them, yeah. and not forgetting about them? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, so either of you guys want to? Is the question an answer towards him or towards us? <laughs> I'm just teasing. <laughs> um, that, that's, a, that's a great question because um, there's, a, there's reasons why that happens. The, um, one might be that the church thinks that the pastors are primarily responsible for that. And so they just assume, well, they're going to take care of that. Another um, is that maybe they assume the rest of the church body will take care of that. We were, we were kind of talking about this the other night when it comes to serving in ministry. A lot of, there's a lot of different places to serve, but sometimes people don't step up and serve because they assume other people are going to step up and serve. And so um, <clears throat> that, that's... A lot of times our thinking just needs to be adjusted a little bit, um, and Scripture does provide a remedy for that. So I, I would say that the reason why people aren't, and, and I don't mean this to be a rebuke, but the, the simple word is selfishness, meaning people only sometimes think about themselves instead of others, and they're not active in their thinking of others. It's very easy to be active of thinking of self because you get up, you're hungry, and you're breasting, so you brush your teeth, you're hungry, so you eat, you feel dirty, so you take a shower. It's very easy to think of self, right? Mm -hmm. It's hard to think of others when they're out of view, when they're at work all week, and we don't gather together and see them. And so um, this is one reason why we elders, we take attendance on Sunday to try to keep track of who's here and who's not so that we know if they're not here regularly then we need to put them on the care list so that other members will reach out. And so we try to delegate that responsibility to the church um, because this isn't a mentality that only pastors are supposed to have, but the entire church. We are one body. When Like today I went to the doctor because I'm having back pain and side pain and stomach pain 
and all the way through, and I want to make sure I'm not having kidney issues, right? I, I care about me, and my brain does, and the rest of my body doesn't want this part to be hurting. So I, I took action, right? And uh, who knows what the results will come back, but I care about me. Well, if we are one body, you're a part of the body, I'm a part of the body, we are to have the mind of Christ, Philippians tells us, and um, I'll read it to you, that we are to consider other people's interests above our own and not just think about our own interests. And so the way that happens is we have to be deliberate and say, I'm not going to think about me only. I am deliberately going to purpose my mind and my heart to show love to another person by thinking about them, getting invested in their life, getting to know their life a little bit. Where do they work? Do they have a family? What are they into? Um, How is their health? And you know them well enough you're sharing their life with them. Hopefully they're sharing their, their life with you so that you know how to care for them in the event that they fall off the radar. Philippians um, chapter 2 says this, Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That That's directly from Paul, who's in prison, And he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Meaning that's the mind of Christ to act like that. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Meaning he didn't cling to his rights. I'm just going to sit on my throne in heaven for all eternity. Instead, he took on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And he, uh, being found in human form, he humbled himself by being, uh, becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross. So how did Jesus look out for the interests of others. He left his throne. He took on the form of humanity, a form of a servant. He obeyed God's law, and he obeyed God even to the point of death so that we might not have to perish in hell. That is someone, our God, who looks out for the interests of others and would not have us to perish under his judgment, but did something to proactively move you closer to God. And so in our caring for others, that is what we are destined to do. That is what God has called us to in part of our good works. I, if I want to help that person, like Jesus, be reconciled and stay reconciled and grow closer to God. And so I'm going to leave my own comfort. I'm going to empty myself, so to speak, of my own desires, and I'm going to go be like Jesus, take on his mind, and go help them in their walk with God. And so that's, that's, it's just a mind shift and a heart shift to create your actions to shift in that direction. And so that's what we pray for in our church. And I pray that you'll hear that, um, church, online, in person. There are people that need you to go out and be like Christ. And really, we're created in the image of God. So when we don't do that, we are really defying our creator by just being inwardly focused. We, you can't use... Um, you, you can't use human, uh, human psychology labels to put on yourself, I just have a fear of being around other people, or that's just not me, or my OCD won't allow me to do this. For, forget all that garbage. That's the way the world has conditioned you and trained you to think. Shed that garbage and do what the Word of God says and think like the Word of God tells you to think. Have the mind of Christ. Amen? All right. I just had something I wanted to read from Ephesians uh, chapter 4. Verse 15, when he mentioned, he talked about as far as the body being one. And Paul writes here, But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him the whole body fitted and knit together by supporting ligament, I'm sorry, by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. 
And then he contrasts with those of the Gentiles. He says, therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for, for more and more. So I'm saying that the more and more, basically it's all about the selfish desires of satisfying those uh, as far as according to the worldly ways. But that is not how you came to know Christ, right? That basically you took off the former way and you've become, you've put on Christ and you're one with him. Mm-hmm. There's, there's nothing I can add scripturally. There's just one thing, and, and I want to make sure I say this right. Um, as Pastor Josh said, people assume the pastors are going to do it or somebody else is going to do it. And that's wrong. And, and what we do is, as Pastor Josh said, when we notice somebody's not here, they end up on the care list. But what continually happens, <clears throat> member meeting after member meeting after member meeting, is everyone assumes someone else is going to reach out to the person on the care list. And then it's only the same three people who reach out to everyone that reach out to the people on the care list. And there's no other word for this than evil. Um, because it, it is self-centeredness. It's not thinking about it. And I don't want to like you know berate our people or anything yeah. like that, but I want to call our people to repentance on this. Yeah. We, it's not good enough for us to assume someone else should do it. Assume no one else is doing it. Assume the fact that you were there when you heard that person's name, that God mm-hmm. is calling you individually to reach out to that person. And if everybody has that mentality and everybody's following Philippians 2 and everybody's following Ephesians 4... And that it means the people on the care list will be flooded yeah. with believers reaching out to them mm-hmm. and loved ones in the church saying, hey, how are you doing? And, and stuff like that. Or even if, those that are sick. Yeah, those babies are have had babies. Yeah. And, and so what happens is, yeah, not some people do well. And then some people, you know, will will leave meals. And that's all fantastic. And I love that. And none of that needs to stop. That all needs to continue. But what I'm saying is just that, as you were saying, Albert, it's not hard to send a text. Yeah. It's not hard to give a call. Let me, let me add a little tip because some, some of you are thinking, I don't know those people. I've never met these people that are on the care list. So that may be out of fear why you don't reach out to those people or just lack of knowledge of that person. I get that. That's like cold calling if you're a salesperson, okay? What a horrible thing to do, right? I'm calling this person. How am I going to hold them accountable? Let me just give you a tip. You give them a call and say, hey, Mr. So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so, brother, sister, so-and-so, I know you don't know me. I'm a newer member to the church. I just wanted to call and introduce myself. I'm trying to get more acquainted with people at the church, and uh, I see that you're a member. I, I, don't know, um, I don't know if I've ever met you face-to-face, and uh, if we have, forgive me, but I just wanted to see, is there any way that I can pray for you? How are you doing? And you just insert your, your, you into their life that way. Like, th- that's a practical tip if you don't know what to do. Right? And they're like, oh, you know, I haven't been in a while. Okay, is everything okay? Is there any way that we can serve as a church? Anything you want me to let the elders know or the deacons? Like, how can, how can we come alongside and help you in your faithfulness to God? And that's it. And you just, you're, you're checking on them and you're doing, but maybe you didn't know how to do that. Maybe, maybe that's a coaching tip to help you. And that would transform the church. That's Absolutely easy. That's easy. It. You just right away acknowledge you don't know them. <laughs> you, you, you take away your fear. I don't know you. You don't know me, but I'm newer. And or I apologize if I don't, if you're there all the time and I don't see you, but let me introduce myself. How can I, how can I pray for you? And that's just a simple way to do that. So hopefully that helps. Amen. Amen. Frank, 
David was so kind to let me, you know. Hey, of course, I, I, He's honoring I, wanted, I wanted to piggyback a question on, on Albert. Would it be okay uh, that I take the communion to somebody who has been in the hospital for a while, couldn't come to church, and could we take communion together? Historically, that's what deacons have done. Um, Even if I'm not a deacon, just a member? I think anybody that we would commission. authorize to commission. commission. Hey, now we got a commission. Yeah. We were talking about what does a commission look like in our context. I think you just gave us an answer. Yeah. But, yeah, like it would be something where we could say, like, if, if one of us can't do it or a deacon can't do it, that is one thing that I do feel that sometimes we overlook is our yeah. shut-ins. Yeah. And, uh, and they do need to be able to partake of the Lord's Supper and... Yeah. Um, they do need some sort of contact, regular contact with uh, with the saints. Yeah. And I believe we've just got too comfortable with the, the digital stuff, mm-hmm. which is great. I'm glad they could be connected that way, but they yeah. still need some, like, Shut-ins. incarnation. Yeah, or those in the hospital. We even talked yeah. a little bit about baptism recently uh, when someone is not able to be physically in the in the whatever this is called is the tub, the baptismal, right, B- baptistry. Um, what, would, what do we do? Hose them down. <laughs> throw water balloons at them like what's the protocol right um and we had talked about that that, that there are special allowances that would warrant you know maybe a pouring or something mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. if uh, they physically could not get out of bed or they were unable to or something like that you know so the same thing with communion um you know which is it's kind of interesting i mean obviously we're sola scriptura <laughs> Meaning the Bible is our final answer. And, you know, the word baptized, like in that example, you know, it means to immerse. But, like, even the second generation of Christians in, in a work called the Didache made it clear that when you can't dunk someone, just pour water on them three times. Like, they dealt with this, too. You know, and so I just, I don't know what they had to do with your question, but I just felt like saying that. Yeah, well, back to said. communion. Yeah, mm-hmm. back, back to communion. And so, um, yeah, I think... Yes, to your question. Yes, and, and it's something we should be doing. But we're not going to give them, you know, Doritos and Coke. Coke. Yeah. <laughs> it's unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. That's I, right. I will be in touch with you guys. Thank you. Uh, this one's online, so I just wanted to go ahead and answer, uh, ask it for the person. Uh, they asked, how can we know whether or not we are a true convert and not a false convert? Hmm. I had this one last time. I think we did have this one last time. Yeah, or two times ago. Yeah. I think the same guy asked it. I think Luke asked Luke asked Yeah, Luke Luke asked it. He asked it this time, too. All right, Luke. (laughs) We're going to refer you back to our last Q&A. Next. Um, Because we we dealt with that one quite a bit, right? That took up. If if it's all right with you, not not trying to brush you off, but uh, if you'll go back to our last Q&A, maybe the one before, I think we did... Uh, tackle that for a good amount of time. That was like a 25-minute answer. I yeah, think. and uh, we just refer you back to the book of John briefly. To um, Although I heard somebody say that uh, the book of John was not uh, written to see if whether you're a believer or not, um, and uh, I would contest that. It shows us... Uh, he's no longer with us. But, um, but uh, I, I did... Uh, it, it says right away that uh, the whole point... Of John's writing at the beginning is to make sure that our fellowship is with the apostles who have fellowship with the Lord. And so, um, indeed, it is to see if you are in Christ. And that's why John wrote that letter. You're talking about 1 John. 1 John. 1 yes. John, yes. 1 yeah. John, sorry. Oh, a friend of Oh, gotcha. Yeah, maybe. Um, still, um, still, he might be able to refer back to that yeah. just so that, uh, you know, we can try to hopefully tackle some other things. 
And, and honestly, I think like we were in the zone on that day to answer that question. <laughs> I don't know if I, if we could answer it as good this time. Yeah, it, it was pretty. We thorough. forgot everything. Yeah, we're already like I don't know if something's saved anymore. No, <laughs> no but yeah, if, if the person could go find that one, that'd be perfect. Yeah, and First John, all you just look for the phrase uh, "having been born again" or "having." Um, Born again. Just look for that phrase in First John, and you'll see the evidences of someone who God has made new. And so that's, uh, I think there's like four or five of them in there. Um, I don't remember the exact count, but this is how you know you've been made new, how you know you've been made more, born again. Um, and so you'll see that in First John. Yeah, and just a general awareness of sin and frustration over it that increasingly grows, I think, is one of the, the biggest, mm-hmm. biggest subjective, like internal alarms letting you know like good alarms like hey i'm a christian ernesto i just came to spit some raps real quick (laughs) he's like what do you think of this song that's the question so check out these lyrics real quick i'm just kidding um so i don't even i'm not even sure i understand my question uh so recently so i've been a i've been a fan of uh you guys probably are probably aware if you're aware of like christian hip-hop really christian hip-hop I don't know if you're familiar with Cross Movement. Cross Movement, they're out of Philadelphia. They got the ambassador. You know, a lot of these dudes are like, uh, you know, they also went to uh, seminaries. And, you know, their background is, uh, you know, their, you know, Bible and whatnot. Is so it, anyways. Is it West Philadelphia? Uh, Born so, and raised? <laughs> <laughs> Caught that. A little late. On the playground? <laughs> um, yeah, so they're, so they're from Philly. And uh, they're a real known group, pioneers in the, in the hip-hop scene, real good dudes. And uh, so anyways, just giving that brief history, just all that to say, um, one of the members, his name is The Fanatic. <laughs> hey, get over here. Close it down, Papa. <laughs> and um, The Fanatic, he, um, so it's a trip, man. I'm sure you guys heard stories, too. People have been in seminary and some professor or, or somewhat has have influenced them and they... Uh, you know, just depending on what what um, what the professor uh, introduced, right? It just shifted their whole worldview, and and they um. So, anyways, it was kind of a bummer um, about that. So, anyway, so the fanatic he he wrote a book, he wrote a book, and it's on Amazon. And and uh, the reason I know about this because I, I started following him on Facebook. I just really want to know what he's what he's what he's implying because he's kind of it's almost like a thing where. Um, you know, he's part of the part of the body of Christ. And now because of this outside or I don't even know if it's an out. Yeah. Again, you know, I don't even know the exact details. But now because he's so influential, it, it's sort of like he's whatever he learned in the seminary that that caused him to to uh, to question his faith. And you guys perhaps uh, might know what I'm talking about. So his the big thing is 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 once uh, this professor or this book that influenced him. I think it had to do with Genesis 1 and 2. And that's his big... What, the two, the potential two creation accounts? So is he denying the faith? Is he like saying, hey, I don't believe the Bible's <laughs> inerrant anymore? Or is he yeah. is he like a progressive Christian? Like, what exactly is the nature of his error? Yeah, you know, um, man, his whole thing, man, it, it, he's saying like the, go- the gospel story is beautiful, the way it's portrayed. But... Unfortunately, like just because of the the knowledge that he has now, right? Uh, enlightenment, you can say, right? Uh, he just doesn't feel the same way about it anymore. And it's like, and it's almost like he's 
it's almost like that's what I'm saying. That's why I said I don't even understand my question because it's just so deep, and I haven't really looked into the exact details of like all his where his belief system is. But I know his big thing is is, is Genesis one and Genesis two, and the way that this uh, professor sort of uh, spoke about it. I'll get more details. I don't know what I can get tonight, but I'll I'll, I'll get more details. I would just really like to to get you guys' take on it. Um, on that, I'll, I'll you know I'll give you some videos and what, and I'll send over. But I, I was it was just kind of like a bummer. I was just like, man, dude, like what you well, know? At, at the least, it, at the least, it proves when you question the foundations, the whole edifice can uh, easily come down. So if Genesis one and two are not literal history, because that's how Moses presents them, not as figurative poetry, but as uh, literal history. If it's if it's not that, then um, then the bottom line is. Uh, <laughs> All right, sorry. Um, See, sippy cup was down I here. Completely I killed my train of thought. Um, yeah, if if you lose Genesis one and two, it's game over. Like, yeah. if there's no literal Adam, no literal Eve, then there's no fall that affects all humankind. What did Christ come to fix? If death was something that's natural that occurred over billions and billions of years, then again, how is death a penalty for sin? How does Christ's death? He would have died anyway, right? <clears throat> apart from apart from sin, and so. Yeah, if you could get somebody to doubt the first 11 chapters of Genesis, it's weird. Like some people will see it all as a metaphor and believe like evolution and all that, but somehow still hold the gospel. Like they hold it inconsistently. And I'm thankful that they're not consistent because the second they become consistent, they will walk away from the faith. And it sounds it sounds like that's what this fella has done. And all I would say to that is for every liberal seminary professor that thinks that way, there are plenty of God-honoring scholarly people with their PhDs who will hold the opposite position and believe that Genesis is the Word of God. Um, you know, I love Creation Ministry International because those are all PhD scientists who are supporting a young earth, um, and they're doing it with real scientific models, not the old creationism of the 1960s, which, you know, was good at questioning evolution but was horrible at presenting their own scientific models. Now creationists are presenting their own models and you know, running them in computer simulations, and they're more or less explaining what we see in the world a lot better than the secular models. So, again, he accepted what one person said, and he wasn't interested to go find the opposing viewpoint because there's so much out there now. We're so blessed today. I think it would have been a lot harder in the 50s, 1950s, with this kind of stuff than it is now. I'm thinking of Charles Templeton, Mm -hmm. how, you know, he was a better version of Billy Graham. He was Billy Graham's buddy, and then he went to a liberal seminary, lost his faith there. And then, you know, Billy Graham kind of stepped in and became the next big thing. I would say it was Westminster Theological Seminary in Philly. Wow. It's like, you know. Well, again, wow. not, not everybody in the Presbyterian there, you know, world holds yeah. to a literal creation. In fact, it was Meredith Klein out of Westminster who came up with the whole, like, um, day one corresponds to day four, day two, or, yeah, day two to day five, day three to day six, and... You know, one is God arranging, the other is God adorning. Um, and he really came up with that to try to um, more or less say that, see, it's, it's so symmetrical, it's not meant to be taken literally. But again, when you hold a position like that, eventually somebody who's logical is going to say, all right, then, if this isn't literal, then all the rest, the gospel story is a beautiful story, but it's not reality. So you got to hold on to Genesis tight. Mm-hmm. Hi, Aaron. 
I knew it. I knew on the camera, like, his head's top cut of off. your head's cut off. But uh, <laughs> Going to a lunge position. It's out of frame. It's not yeah. literally cut off yeah. for anybody yeah. worrying about Aaron's health. <laughs> yeah, but um, I kind of I missed something uh, when you were talking just now. What was the name of that group? You said the Creation Scientists? Oh, Creation Ministry International. Creation Ministry. Because okay, I know that I've looked into, um, like, Answers in Genesis. Um, I, not too much, but what I have found so far, uh, I wasn't too interested about. Um, anyway, so you said it was the Creation Ministry? Yeah, Creation Ministry International. It, like, their website's just creation.com. Really easy to remember. And the stuff they put out is great. Answers in Genesis is good, too, though. They got some real scientists. And, you know, Creation Ministry International brags that they're the ones who sent Ken Ham over here, mm. you know. And so um, he's kind of like a spinoff from them. And then another good one is uh, the ICR. I can't Institute remember. of Creation Research. Yeah, yeah Institute, Institute of Creation Research. Research. They also have some solid <laughs> PhD scientists. I think my favorite is Christian uh, Creation Ministry International. Um, but all three of those are great organizations. And each of them have some pretty heavy-hitting scientists. Like from ICR, I love Jason Lyle. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. just a, a PhD astrophysicist, and the dude's amazing. Um, I wish he was part of CMI. But again, it, it, I think it's good that these uh, heavy hitters are spread out among various uh, organizations. Okay. So um, is it like a one question per <laughs> Hey, per there's nobody behind you in line. So Okay, so... Um, Going more into Genesis, so uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, it talks about the sons of God. So I know that I've looked into that before and that there's um, different views on it. You know, I know that there's one that it could be uh, like angels <clears throat> that took up the, the wives, the daughters of men, um, or another... Another side of it could be that it's talking about the different lines between uh, Seth or Cain. Seth being the, the line of sons of sons of God. Yeah. So um, I just wanted to know what you guys thought about that. Well, I was going to pass this off to Brian, but he uh, he passed it off to me. So I, you know, I covered this uh, I covered this fairly in depth on that particular sermon in Genesis. Um, you know, I, we could answer this I, probably two or three ways, right? So first way is always exegetically, like what does the text say? It says the Beneha Elohim, the sons of God, saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took them. And the word take means they seized them. Um, so these women didn't have much of a, of, of a choice about it. So you have to look at that phrase in the Old Testament, sons of God. Um, that phrase is only ever used of angels, it happens in First Kings, it happens in Job, and it happens in Genesis. Um, and so, like, what people want to do is say in the New Testament, we're called sons of God, you know, by adoption. So they want to read that back into this, and that's where that whole godly line of Seth comes from. But the point is, uh, there, there's real... Genesis 5 does not present Seth's line as godly. It just presents the royal lineage, Okay, like this guy led to this guy to this guy. And Cain's ungodly line, right? It doesn't necessarily present them all as ungodly because some of the names that they gave them were pretty good God-honoring names. And so I think a lot of people make a lot of assumptions. And you'd also have to ask yourself, how does the marriage between believer and unbeliever create mighty men of renown called Nephilim? You know, um, 
there'd be a lot of people in the NBA because, you know, Christians are marrying um, non-Christians. And so we don't see that happening. And so exegetically, yeah, like really, like if you're just going to go off what the text says, it, it would be the these fallen angels did something they shouldn't have done. And then there's some New Testament passages that allude back to it in both Jude and Second Peter. Jude specifically says they abandoned their estate. And so because of that, Peter then tells us they are in a special chamber of chain, like where they're in darkness and they're in chains right now because of a sin they did back in the days of Noah. So like things like that really, you put it all together, it means what it means. And then historically, there's been no other position like among Judaism. Like if you go back and read everything that was written from the time of the apostles and a little bit before, like all of them allude back to this. Jubilees, Enoch, I mean, just again and again, pseudophilo, they all keep referring, Josephus, um, every single one of them were convinced it was fallen angels that, that did this thing with uh, human daughters and it created this hybrid offspring and that's one reason um, the flood happened. And the fact that, that Jude quotes the book of Enoch, the fact that um, Paul at times is going to allude and quote some of these sources as well, um, just let you know it was, the, it was the common belief and it was not repudiated by the New Testament. The first time this gets questioned was by a church father in the 300s named Julius, uh, Julius Africanus. And his main reason was he thought the traditional view was an embarrassment to the Greek philosophers, like they scoffed at it. So that's when he came up with the Seth versus Cain view. Um, so it was really just to try to appeal to the lost who were scoffing. Um, so yeah, my position is it says what it says and they were angels. But okay. again, not everybody agrees on that. Okay, and then for um, the next verse after that, uh, said, and the Lord said, "My spirit will not remain with mankind forever, because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years." So, um, I guess just yeah, more into that. I know that you have the Genesis series. I'm going through it, but I'm just not that deep into it yet. <laughs> You're like, I don't. It's going to take me forever to get to chapter six. <laughs> Yeah, um, I guess my question just is, um, so I, uh, I've been listening to the first, or the, I think it's first Peter series as well, and you mentioned how um, before people are saved, they're born as, or they're spiritual stillborns, so I was wondering if this plays into that at this time, um, you know, it says that. My spirit will not remain with them if that has anything to do with it and what that meant for the time before when his spirit was with them. The way I understand this passage is the one thing that the New Testament seems to imply about the Holy Spirit is he's a restrainer of evil, um, even among worldly people. And we call this common grace. Like, even though we believe in total depravity, that doesn't mean we believe people are as bad as they can be. Um, common grace prevents us from all becoming Hitlers and Stalins and stuff like that. And the Holy Spirit is that, that restrainer, right? And so as things get wickeder and wickeder, the Holy Spirit kind of lifts that restraining influence and humans dive deeper into their sin, which is, I think, something we're seeing in our society right now. So I think that's all that we're seeing there. Um, it's just the restraining influence of the Spirit on all humanity um, as part of His common grace. And we know that when the tribulation starts, I mean, that restraining is going to completely go away. Um, then you're going to, it's going to be the darkest time ever. So this might have been like an ancient version of that. Okay. And then, 
One last question I have is about uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, about the abomination that causes desolation. Um, I have to read the, the Daniel chapter that it alludes to. Um, I was just wondering um, what that's about. <laughs> chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 12. Daniel alludes to it, or says it three times. Um, it, any of you guys want to answer these, or do you want me to keep going? You cover all this stuff, so I figure you have the best answers. So, there are different views on this. Some people are going to take the view that this was all fulfilled when Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70. I don't buy that, because... Daniel's abomination of desolation was specific. Somebody goes into the Holy of Holies, sets up an idol, and makes a sacrifice to it. Um, and, and Paul has that same thing in mind in 2 Thessalonians because he says the man of lawlessness will stand inside the Holy of Holies and proclaim himself to be God. Titus, the, the general of Rome, never did that. And so people will do all kinds of things saying, well, it doesn't have to be exact. Or, uh, you know, the, the Romans started uh, worshiping their gods outside the Wailing Wall. Well, it's, still, it's not the same. Um, so I anticipate there will be some... I believe there will be a third temple built. I mean, the, the, the fact is, like, there's a whole group of priests in Israel trained right now to be able to do this. They just need the real estate. Um, but they've been practicing sacrifices, practicing everything. And I'm not saying that those things are valid. I'm just saying this is something that they're planning on doing. And if they got the chance, they would. And then there would be an opportunity for a world leader to stand in the Holy of Holies and do exactly what this says. Uh, that's what I'm anticipating will happen. Now, some people um, prefer to go the, the metaphorical route. And the Holy of Holies is our heart. And the man of lawlessness is just that the spirit of lawlessness that still exists within each of us. I, I don't think you could get that from what Paul's saying. And, you know, in, in the Olivet Discourses, Jesus is explaining everything. I mean, I think he seems pretty clear. He ties it to, to the location of Israel. Like, if you're there, flee to the hills of Judea. So the only two plausible options, I think, are either A, it was fulfilled in the year 70, just not, not, just not literally, but sort of, or it's still yet to be done. And I go with this still yet to, still yet to happen. Okay. All right, yeah, that's all my questions. Thank you. So there was a question from Josiah. Um, he said, how can we combat and defeat depression and anxiety? Hmm. So, yeah, um, yeah, I'll speak to that. You know, depression and anxiety is obviously, it's a very... Um, Plaguing, I don't want to say disorder. Plaguing what? Plaguing um, mindset. Mindset. Yes, that's. I mean, I, I just know that in my work environment, I see a lot of people that, um, you know, that speak of depression and anxiety, and and so their only way out is to get a pill, take a pill. That's what they kind of go through, and and it just seems like that's just what we've kind of, you know, modern medicine has kind of moved to that. Hey, basically, if you're not feeling good, take a pill for it. Um, the anxiety piece. Um, I'll speak directly to that um, as one that's definitely dealt with anxiety. I know Pastor Josh has as well. Um, that that could be so crippling. It really can be to when when it comes on you, um, it really feels like it's it's taking over. And the way out, 
for that, I know speaking, just going through the scriptures and, and talking about the, the put off, put on piece is that it's a really concerted effort to realize that you, when you are having anxiety about things, you are actually believing lies. You're believing lies and you're allowing those thoughts to have a hold on you. So it's about replacing those, those lies with what is true. So if I have this fear that I'm not saved, I say, no, what is true is that Christ, his finished work on the cross is what secures me, not me. I need to believe that. So when I start believing that, continue to believe that, those other things start dissipating. Now, it takes work. It, it's very, very challenging. I think that's why a lot of people easily go to medicine. I think I'm cut out now. Am I cut out now? I'm good? Okay. Um, but it is very, very hard. But it is a continual thing of putting off and putting on and really seeking the Lord, seeking the, the Holy Spirit to guide you. And to, again, to go back to, if you don't know God's word, uh, you will struggle through anxiety. You will struggle through depression. Because it's all a battle of the mind. It really, really is a battle of the mind. And I know one thing there's been the, in, in, this, in the scientific community that um, you know, there's serotonin level issues that people have, and so they get on these pills, and that's what's actually changing it. But, I mean, there's more and more research coming out that that whole thing's really a myth. I mean, the reality is that um, studies have shown that just even exercising does the same amount as one of these pills will do. But what do people want to do? Take the pill over exercising, right? That's kind of an easy thing to do. So, um, But, yeah, that's, that's a very good question. I know that biblical counseling really gets to the heart of that and works through that. And I know speaking, just seeing Mindy, when she has counseled ladies, seeing them have, I mean, it's a complete 180 of anxiety going away and it's complete liberation there's no longer this kind of this bondage to this i have anxiety and what happens is people start to identify with this as that that's who they are and it's like no that's not who you are and that's that's the first lie is believing that you are you know you you are whatever your ailment is and that's not the case yeah um first i want to acknowledge that depression and anxiety are real because we all experience them at one point or another um, the world observes the same things that we observe. Just like in creation, they observe the same thing, but oftentimes, because we have different worldview and different foundation, we will come to do two different conclusions on how to address the problem so that it ends in the right way. Okay? So the, the world looks at things, and they see, they see things naturalist, naturalistically. They don't, they don't take into account God. They don't take into account our fallenness. They just take evolution into account, and they think, well, we're just a bunch of chemicals and neurons, and so the problem is to pump chemicals into us in order to fix the problem. And so Scripture presents things very differently. Um, it presents us as fallen creatures who no longer act right, who no longer think right, and who no, no longer feel right because of our fallen condition. And the solution to that is the gospel. Ultimately, Christ will restore us physically, emotionally, mentally, fully, spiritually, so that there is nothing wrong about us. There's nothing fallen about us. And uh, we, we anticipate that. So ultimately, the answer to the question is, how is that fixed? It's fixed ultimately through Christ and through the gospel and salvation and a final redemption. So that's the ultimate sense. But uh, I think the question is being asked in a temporal sense, how do we deal with that? Right? We don't just struggle with depression, struggle with anxiety, and just wait and wait and wait, okay? Uh, part of it is trying to understand why people are depressed and trying to understand why people are anxious. Sometimes people are depressed because things don't go their way, and they have a hyper uh, expectation or a wrong expectation of how things should go. And so when they don't go their way, they get sad and they get turned inward and sad and depressed. That's sinful, 
So you have to understand why, why people are depressed. Um, they don't get their way. Uh, their expectations weren't met. You just have to figure out why um, they are dealing with depression so that they can get past that. And then scripture will help address those things. Sometimes it is because of a lack of taking care of your body. We have to remember that we're uh, mind and body. The mind affects the body and the body affects the mind. All right. If if uh, if you're let me just give an example. If you're a glutton and you eat and eat and eat and you become overweight to the point where uh, you can't uh, do much and now you're not interacting with people and now you're sad. You're not around people. You're not interacting in the church life and uh, right. Your the way that you treated your body affects now your spiritual condition and, and it goes back and forth. Um, I'll tell you what the um, the most famous king in the Old Testament, David. He said to himself, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Right? Isn't that what depression and sometimes anxiety feel like? Feel like? He says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And so what, what David did in order to, con- he recognized his condition and where he was at, and he was facing a lot of different things at a lot of different times, okay? Um, attacks from his son, attacks from without, wars, all that stuff. And so he had very, what we would say, legitimate reason to be anxious, to be depressed. But he put his hope in God. Mm-hmm. He understood, like, this is the reality of the fallen world I live in. People are at me, but my hope is in God. Mm-hmm. And so understanding why we're in a jacked up world helps lower our expectations of perfection and everything going the way that we want. Knowing that God is our salvation helps deal with anxiety. We no longer have to worry about the things that we're worried about. Of course, this is general application, not specific to each person's situation. Okay, But um, I think, like Brian said, too often the world goes directly to medication. And sometimes all it does is just make a person feel uh, like they're okay, but they've never addressed their heart idols They've never addressed what's really causing the, the issue. And so the, it's just like putting a Band-Aid on a gushing wound. You take away the medicine, and all of a sudden they're back to feeling and thinking those thoughts. And, and really, they need to get their heart reoriented to God. And um, Scripture is, is sufficient for that. Um, it goes against the grain of pop psychology. But um, I can tell you that pop psychology will never help a person's anxiety uh, be cured by pointing them to God. And really, ultimately, that's where our problem is. And same thing with depression. I, I've, I've struggled with both at one point or another for long periods of time. And um, being directed back to God is what takes care of those things. And so um, I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to tell people necessarily to go off medication. But I would first start with your sin condition and make sure that, that and just follow through thinking, why am I depressed? What, what's, what's really got me worried? What's really got me sad? And assess whether those things are sinful, um, sinful presuppositions. Like you just have a way of thinking that has affected your mind, and it's deterred you from hoping in God. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that helps. Just a, a couple, couple things that I would add. Um, so you know, on, on one hand, I think the world takes mental illness to a level beyond illness. So, for example, let's say I had cancer. I wouldn't say I am cancer. I, I, I am AIDS. Uh, you know, I, I am a heart attack. No, we don't do. But for some reason, when it comes to these man-made labels, 
that's our identity. I'm depressed. I'm bipolar. I'm bipolar. Yeah. You know, I'm this, I'm that. And it's and so even thinking that way puts you into a type of slavery. Victim mentality. The victim, yeah. It, you're, you're a victim of your circumstance. Yeah, yeah. helpless. And can't it, fix it. Can't fix it. You're, this is just, you have to learn now how to cope with it or whatever. And so, so the bottom line is you end up, if you buy into their line, you're already in slavery. You're set in a cage that you cannot get out, and their system only makes the cage bigger. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like if, if you all of a sudden started getting a headache every day, and you don't know why you're getting the headache, but you're getting the headache, and so you're taking Tylenol every day, and it helps a little bit. The point is the Tylenol doesn't cure the headache. So you've got to find out, what's actually, why did these headaches start happening, and what if it's you live in Hinkley and your water's poisoned? You know, and, and Aaron Brockovic hasn't figured this out yet. But then this does get figured out. If you stop drinking the water, the headaches go away, yeah. right? And so, so you have to figure out what the root is. And, and so to Josiah, to your question, when it comes to anxiety, um, most anxiety, when you read the scriptures that talk about it, come down to one way or another, us not trusting God because we're not in control. Like we can't control some circumstance. Yeah. It's something outside of us. It's bigger yeah. than us. Yeah. We wish that we could control every variable. Yeah. We can't. And so things are entering our life that we don't want and so we get worried over it. Yeah. And so it starts with the frame of thinking. Now, if you think that way too long, um, you train your mind like you train your mind to then continue to think that way. And there is some sort of chemical aspect to it because we are a psychosomatic union, meaning we're a body with the soul. And so sometimes when when the soul is thinking, bless you, in a certain way so much, the body comes to then um, starts to generate some of those symptoms um, that's just something that could happen. And so, and then what do we do? We sleep less, which makes it worse. And then because we're sleeping less, we drink more caffeine, which makes it worse. And so I, I was spending time with a relative last week who's had, he's dealing with some anxiety that's just ridiculous, for lack of a better term. Um, and I started looking at, at how much caffeine he drank. And then one, everything I just said, he's a control freak and he's ticked off that he can't control everything. And so he's anxious, but it's like worse than it's ever been. And I'm looking at, I'm like, dude, you are drinking 620 milligrams of caffeine per day. I just went and looked it up. An adult should never have more than 400. That's four cups of coffee. If I have four cups of coffee, I get jacked up. And so at the most I could have two. Um, And that's why at Starbucks, my third one's always been a decaf, right? So two, and some adults can handle four. You're having the equivalent of six and a half cups of coffee because he wasn't reading the label on an energy drink. Like, this has 300 milligrams. And then that espresso shot, what's wrong with you, man? And so I told him that alone, if you knock this stuff off and you just drop to the two cups, you're like little shakes and all that. And because he just would be grunting in his chair. He's like, mm. Mm. just grunting I'm like listen that'll go away with the caffeine and then as far as the rest of this it just you got to stop thinking in terms of of your frustration of not being in control what I found is the more I surrender to God the less anxious I get and I'm I'm okay with that and so I haven't really had to deal with much anxiety but depression I've been depressed like like pretty serious depression I would say twice in my life both times were because of sinful expectation on my part. Yep. And me being angry over a circumstance. There was something I was wanting that I wasn't getting. And, and just my sinful thoughts led to that. And so something that was real helpful in, in understanding that was Jay Adams and Competent to Counsel explains depression and he uses Cain um, as an example of it. So what happens is there's an external circumstance. And you could either respond righteously or sinfully to it. 
if you respond sinfully, it's only going to make it worse, mm-hmm. right? And then what happens is it becomes a little spiral. And so there ends up becoming some consequence from your sinful response. And so right there, you're at the same fork in the road again. Do I do a righteous response and turn back? Or do I then answer with another sinful response? And when you do, it, you know, it pretty much what, it ends up becoming like a whirlpool, right? And when you get to the bottom of it, your whole life's out of control and you're so depressed where you don't even want to wake up or live anymore, it's because there's a chain of sinful responses to an original external circumstance. Yeah. Which, by the way, lets me know it's not a real mental illness. Yeah. Let's say Brian was, was depressed. If it is an illness, then he has to cough this pathogen into me and then I get depressed. But that's not how it happens. You don't catch depression from somebody. It's an external circumstance. You think about it a certain way. You respond to it a certain way. And then keep adding more responses. And you end up depressed, right? And so the way out is just saying, okay, what was the last sinful response? I need to go make that right. And then once you do that, you then think back, okay, what was the one before that? And the further down you go, yeah, the longer you have to climb out of it. But once you get out of it, you're out of it, right? And so there's biblical ways, as Pastor Josh said, the scripture is sufficient. As Pastor Brian said, it's putting off, renewing the mind, putting on. That is how you will combat it every time. So understand specifically, like, what's the root? Is it poison water that's causing the headaches? And then you go after that. You go after that way of thinking and that way of responding. Yeah, and that's a thank you for asking that, brother. And um, at the risk of going over time, I think that's a very important one to address. So I'm going to share as briefly as I can. In 2011, I went through a year-long depression. And I had a dear brother in the Lord come over and pray for me, and the depression lifted. So I I don't remember exactly what he prayed, but I remember being directed back towards God and getting my thoughts focused in the right way. And from that point forward, I no longer was discouraged or depressed. And I'll share with you what happened and what led to the depression. And in hindsight, I can see it a lot better than when I was in it. I was in the car business like I am now. We'd already gone through a a two, three-year recession. Even though we were officially out of the recession, the car business was slow to pick back up. And in 2011, I went through uh, just a year-long depression. And here's how my thoughts went. Man, this this is horrible. We're never going to get out of the situation. Right? There's no... First of all, there's no hope in God. Man, the, the, why, would, why would God put me in this business? I, I succeeded everything. Why can't I succeed now? And my thoughts just began to turn inward. Man, look at these leads. I've been working these leads forever. My boss is a jerk making me call these things, these people over and over again when there's nothing there. This constant negative thinking and rehearsing of how bad things were instead of bringing my needs and supplications to God, which what Scripture says... Praising him for the things he's done in the past so that the peace of God will pass, that passes all understanding, will take over my heart. Right? I, I wasn't putting hope in God. Man, how am I going to pay my bills? Man, God, I serve you. I serve you, Lord. Why, why is this happening to me? Unreal expectations. Thinking that because I serve God, nothing bad should ever happen to me. Do you see how those sinful thoughts can just, and I would rehearse them every day. I don't want to go to work and deal with this today. And it just consumed me. Instead of doing what Scripture said to do, and here I am trying to pastor, trying to teach Scripture, allowing the external circumstance to dictate the narrative of what's really going on in the world when there was a bigger narrative at play, the narrative of Scripture, that redemption is coming. We live in a fallen world. There are economic hardships, and sometimes God puts us through those things, but it doesn't 
It doesn't negate his good, loving character nevertheless. And so looking back, I can see how I would just, I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to go to work. I just was bitter and depressed, waking up with anxiety, like literally for a whole year because of my sinful thoughts. And I didn't recognize it at that time. And that's what happens when we get depressed. We would, it's easier to blame the outside forces and circumstances and systems around us and people rather than to own up that we are, we are creating this, these negative feelings, these negative responses, these negative actions, negative words, negative mindset. We refuse, we're refusing to admit that we have any part in that and that it's, I need a pill. I, I, I need to reorient, uh, and we're not thinking I need to reorient my heart and mind towards God. And when our brother came over and prayed, in hearing his words, I just remember being redirected to God. And that's, that's, that's all it took. For whatever reason, I didn't need to go through 20 sessions of counseling. I had enough of God's word in my heart that when somebody spoke the truth to me versus me being the pastor speaking to people all the time, I, I heard the truth, it resonated, and my mind was literally fixed in, in that 10-minute prayer. That, that, thank God for that. Praise God that, that I had a brother in my life that spoke and encouraged me to redirect my heart through that prayer towards God. And that's all some of us need, right? That's, when I say that's all we need, that's all we need. Okay, it, it, it is sufficient to be directed towards God. That doesn't mean things aren't bad. That doesn't mean that things aren't real and that pains don't happen and that rough situations don't happen. They do. We're not stoic, right? The stoics, you weren't supposed to have any response to any type of, uh, you know, any type of pain or suffering. That's, that's not the kind of people we are. We, have resp- we are going to respond, but the, the question is, are we going to respond rightly or wrongly? Are we going to respond godwardly, bringing us closer to the God in the midst of trial visitation to produce endurance in us and patience and, and all the things that come with suffering? Or are we going to discard God's sovereignty, discard God's providence, spiritual providence in bringing hard situations our way? So anyway, that's, I'm just sharing my experience. And so I can testify uh, that there are probably a lot of people that struggle with these things and they don't realize it's their own unbiblical ungodly thinking. Amen. So do we want to take one more or do we want to call it? I think we're good. Yeah, I'll pray.